Welcome to Cannabis in Focus. I'm Miriam Knight, and I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Paul Davids. Paul is an award-winning Hollywood writer, director, and producer, and he and his friend John Selby have co-authored a memoir of their student days at Princeton in the late 1960s. Then they got recruited and nearly done in by a top-secret CIA mind control program known as MKUltra. It used LSD and deep hypnosis on students for decades until it was finally exposed in 1977. Their book is called Blowing America's Mind, a true story of Princeton CIA mind control, LSD, and Zen. Welcome, Paul. I'm so delighted to have you back. Thank you, Miriam. So your show is called Cannabis in Focus. That's really yes, intriguing yes, to me. Yes, we have moved on a bit from new consciousness. Well, we, we, we have a bit of uh, cannabis in blowing America's mind. And uh, there, that is what you are doing here on this show. In- <laughs> There's in- particularly one chapter <clears throat> of my first encounter with cannabis, which I think is the, the one humorous relief in a story that is very serious. Uh, indeed, and, indeed. Okay. Well, your title alone is a bit mind-blowing. What did you think you were signing up for when you volunteered for this project? Well, let me say a word about the title first. You mentioned it, Blowing America's Mind. Uh, why that title? Where does it come from? Um, we, After trying 20 other titles over the years we were working on this book, John Selby and I uh, settled on... Um, There's a headline from the Los Angeles Times, 1977. It was an editorial. The CIA Blowing America's Mind was the title of the editorial. And it talked about the fact that, uh, once again, this nation, America, confronts the question of how to prevent its secret, powerful intelligence agencies from destroying the very freedoms that they were set up to protect. We thought that was the perfect title uh, for our book because it's set the light in the late 1960s at a time when uh, mind-blowing was on everybody's uh, lips. Um, LSD was uh, becoming popular and widely used across the country and widely promoted, let's say, by the Beatles, uh, by Timothy Leary. And I, um, you know, I, I... I got into, well, let's say my interest in it came from the fact I was majoring in psychology. I had read about the psychedelics. I'd read about uh, a man named Humphrey Osmond, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, who actually happened to be the director of a research institute near Princeton, the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute in Skillman, New Jersey. And why was I intrigued by uh, Dr. Osmond? Well, he is the man who came up with that term psychedelic in the first place. You know, ever since the late 1960s, everything has been, um, well, the word, maybe it's overused now, but, you know, it's entered our lexicon as a major descriptive um, a term. And we have the psychedelic experience, which Humphrey Osmond researched. Uh, first in Saskatchewan, Canada, with peyote and Native Americans, And then when he came to New Jersey at the Neuropsychiatric Institute, um, he, um, well, he, he, uh, let me backtrack and say he also experimented uh, giving mescaline to a very famous um, uh, author, 
uh, Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Brave New World. And then Aldous Huxley wrote about his uh, mescaline experience in a book called The Doors of Perception. If you wonder how Jim Morrison decided to call his band The Doors, well, it comes from the title of that book. Uh-huh. So um, my interest in it was keen, but I felt that the most sensible thing to do would be to get involved in experiments that were uh, professionally handled and guided with trained psychiatrists. Uh, and so I became a subject. Uh, but the ad that I answered mainly mentioned deep hypnosis subjects that they were recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave a, a, a strong pitch for it, you know, that it would uh, do away with your inhibitions, it could help with your sex life, it could help <laughs> with your memory, it could give you a taste of nirvana. Um, you know, th- that sounded good. They never said uh, this project is funded by the CIA which has been experimenting in mind control since the 1950s, and uh, it has uh, military purposes behind it. No, that, that was never said, and that was stuff that we found out years later and, and decided, you know, we had to get our book out. What were the sessions like, Paul? Well, we would first be trained to go into a hypnotic uh, state, uh, a, a trance. It would start with a light trance. We had to go through, uh, you know, personality tests first, Rorschach inkblot, uh, interviews, were we too defensive? Could we um, go into a hypnotic state? Because uh, not everyone is uh, susceptible. But I passed on all those grounds. And the beginning was training to get into a very deep state of hypnosis. So, as I said, started with light trances, and then uh, there would be um, the attempt to erase your memory of what happened, uh, the implanting of a hypnotic induction word that you would be responsive to but wouldn't remember, or a, let's say not a word but a term, something like nonsense syllables that you wouldn't hear in your everyday life, but you sit down in the chair, you relax, it's a very meditative state to begin with. And then you're trained to respond to your hypnotist saying a code word, which takes you into a very deep trance. And then he makes it deeper and deeper and then gives you a hypnotic condition that changes your sense of reality in some way. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be studied and observed. Your behavior is studied and observed during the next few hours while you're under that hypnotic condition. And uh, not so much during the training sessions was there complete memory erasure, but there was memory erasure once the real test conditions started. Mm-hmm. And that, that, by the way, is what caused a lot of problems for my co-author, John Selby, um, who was my hypnotist in the training. And he had been through the program himself. And the memory erasure uh, blocks um, that he experienced were... Um, I guess you have to say pretty damaging, actually. He had a lot of psychological problems from uh, his participation in this, and it was very, very hard to break away from it once you were sucked in. When did the LSD come into the picture? They were very cagey about that. <clears throat> they told you that uh, sometimes your hypnosis session might be augmented with uh, LSD, but generally um, uh, you weren't told. 
you might have uh, something, uh, you know, to quench your thirst before you started the session. Maybe something would be put in there or in your coffee. Or sometimes they would deliberately tell you you're going to have a microdose of uh, acid today. And sometimes it wouldn't be true. You'd be given a, um, a placebo. You know, they'd want to see how does it affect things when you think you're under the influence of a psychedelic. Other times you'd be given the psychedelic without being told. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were studying behavior, reactions, and changing your sense of reality. Just give you a few examples of, uh, of, of how they did that. For example, in hypnotic sessions, they might take away your depth perception. So you'd see everything is flat. Well, it turns out that many schizophrenics see the world as flat and don't experience depth perception, and it affects their, their behavior. Uh, mental illness so can come with flat depth perception. With hypnosis or with hypnosis and LSD, they can increase the, the depth perception and see what the changes in behavior, the differences are. Um, they would uh, sometimes blur your vision or sometimes increase the, distinct, uh, the distinctiveness of your vision. Uh, they would play with time, making it seem like time was speeding up and going by faster. Or that time was slowed down, which can cause a state of depression. Uh, they would wipe out your memory of your past wipe out any sense of future. In other words, they were really playing with the mind to see how all of these different things affected a quote-unquote normal uh, research subject. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that you were really a partner in this research or more like a lab rat? Well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't use the expression uh, uh, lab rat. We, we were made to feel like we were part of an important family of researchers who were doing trailblazing work uh, that was going to help in understanding of um, many things around them about the mind. Um, so, you know, we were made to feel welcome and important and valued. But some of the conditions we were put under were uh, Terrifying, actually, you know, and, and you wouldn't have a clear memory of it, and it could go on for hours. And introducing these conditions that could cause uh, states of fear or near panic was deliberate on their part. I mean, you had volunteered. We were paid. You know, we were paid volunteers. So uh, we, we had agreed to go along for the ride, whatever it was. Um, that there came a point where both John Selby, who wrote Blowing America's Mind with me, and I came to feel that uh, we were being used and manipulated in ways that were destructive to us. So we left the program at different times. Uh, and the book, the book really puts you inside our skin as we were part of this program. You know, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the, it's a Ken Kesey mm -hmm. play book. Well, this was like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for, for real. We were, we were flying over the cuckoo's nest every week there. Wow. Did the effects spill over into your daily life and into your relationships? 
They certainly did for John Selby. And I think the strength and the interest of the book, um, that uh, that's the focus of a lot of it. I'm the naive kid starting out in this book. And you get it from the two different points of view. You know, I was gung-ho, oh, I was enthusiastic, and he was worried that he was losing his mind. <laughs> he was worried that he was uh, his past had been blocked out, uh, that he'd been put under hypnotic conditions that had never been erased, uh, that they were manipulating with uh, his relationship with his girlfriend. And so this... Uh, this really gives the uh, the story we're telling a lot of its depth. As uh, you're 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 really seeing uh, in, inside our souls just exactly what it was like to be uh, toyed with in this way for a long period of time. It sounds like the researchers were a bit cynical and callous about your well-being. I don't know that I wouldn't say those are your words. I wouldn't say. Uh, cynical or callous. I mean, they, they, they were scientists who had a purpose. They had research goals. They were funded by the CIA. Uh, but at the same time, they uh, felt that they were furthering research that they would have wanted to be doing anyway, whether the CIA, as, uh, whether the CIA were involved or not. Mm -hmm. um, so... I don't think they were callous about it. I just think that they were trying to be um, uh, professional, but realizing that uh, they were going to uh, put us through some things that were going to be uh, very experimental. You know, I don't think they really knew what the human effects were going to be on all of these things that they were doing, and uh, and they they weren't. <laughs> they weren't all positive. Let's say some of them were were, were pretty dark. Now this. This experimentation while we were at Princeton, this is like one of 150 different CIA mind control experiments, all called MKUltra. And they were doing this all across the country at that time. And they were enlisting some subjects who didn't even know they were subjects, who'd never given their consent. They, they were experimenting on soldiers, uh, so the army people were involved. They were... Uh, using patients in hospitals uh, and students at colleges and universities, um, people at uh, private research centers like the one that we were at. Um, and then uh, they did things to completely unsuspecting people. I mean, they, when all of this came out, it was declassified in the late 1970s, some of the stories were just horror stories, you know, that the, a team of CIA agents goes into a subway car, wears a mask so they're not going to inhale it themselves, sprays LSD in the subway car, and wants to see what's going to happen to the passengers. I mean, really crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. Were you ever afraid for your sanity? Oh, was I afraid for my sanity? You know, after about a year of this... Um, I would say things weren't quite right with me then, mm -hmm. and I was getting depressed. I really wanted to break away, um, but I felt guilty about quitting in the middle of the project because then they would have to invalidate all my data. They, you know, if you didn't see it through to the end, they weren't going to use your data. Mm -hmm. 
and they'd been paying me. And, um, uh, but nevertheless, there, there came a point where I couldn't go on anymore. And my co-author, John Selby, had left the program uh, first under circumstances that really came to an explosion. I mean, he was driven to the point of breaking into their file cabinets and searching for his file and file of other subjects and for information about the program that we weren't being told. And, uh, you know, he was persona non grata when he, he, he left. Uh, you know, they were accusing him of things and and he was returning the favor, and he left Princeton and went to California very abruptly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and he, he warned me at that point that I should leave the program. But when he warned me, I wasn't ready to listen to him. It took more, many more months before I sort of came to the place that he was at. And we didn't talk for a couple of years after this. And... I went on from from Princeton, I pursued my lifelong goal of film. I I ended up in Hollywood. First, I was at the American Film Institute, Center for Advanced Film Studies, a fellowship student there, and uh, studied writing, film writing and directing. And at that time, this is the early 1970s, I wanted this story about the experiments while we were Princeton students, I wanted that to be my first film. Uh, um, little did I know it would take almost 50 years, or 45 years before we would finish, before we would really have a book. So uh, I want your audience to know the book, Blowing America's Mind, has just come out uh, recently. I think uh, um, the end, the end of 2017, people were starting to get advanced copies. And it's taken us this long, you know, really in, the, in that time period, um, a lot of the people we're writing about, the uh, scientists, the psychiatrists, uh, they're dead now, you know, they passed away. So I guess if we had published this decades earlier, we wouldn't have been able to use their real names, but now, you know, it's real names. And, uh, you know, we're just exposing everything mm-hmm. that we, we knew about it. Did you ever fear for your life as you extricated yourself from the program? No, 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 no. I, 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 uh, we did have visits from spooks after we'd been into the project for a while. And uh, Selby more than, than uh, me. I can think of one particular uh, interlude, which is in the book, where guys came up to me that didn't identify themselves and had some very troubling things to say, uh, you know, when we were warned not to talk, but John Selby did talk. It got him into a lot of trouble. He, he in fact, went to, uh, uh, well, the, he went to the New York Times with an article about psychedelic use at Princeton at that time. And uh, the president of the university was upset, called him to a meeting, and that chapter is in the book. I think it's one of the really interesting uh, chapters where John Selby uh, talks with Robert F. Goheen, the president of Princeton, about psychedelics and the research at the Institute. Um, Robert Goheen, after he was no longer president of Princeton, Richard Nixon appointed him to be the U.S. Uh, ambassador to India. 
So, you know, he, he, he was a man with a lot of government connections. And, and, and when all of this was exposed, the New York Times has an article. We have the headline on our back cover, uh, August of 1977, the CIA tells Columbia and Princeton of the secret behavioral research. So, uh, you know, they officially notified them that, you know, their professors had been part of this project. I think that they knew all along, but this was something the CIA did at the point that it all became uh, uh, public. They kind of went public because it was a different administration. It was a, an, a, Jimmy Carter was president when this was uh, made public, mm-hmm. and uh, he had appointed Stansfield Turner, um, a Navy admiral, to be head of the CIA. And, and when all of this was discovered very accidentally, when someone in the CIA and Langley stumbled upon 20 boxes of material about MKUltra that was all supposed to have been burned under orders from Richard Helms, a former director, but he had, he had, uh, it had not been burned. The order had not been followed. So Stansfield Turner tried to distance himself and say, you know, this is the CIA of the past. We're not doing this now. We have no interest in doing these kind of things in the future. But it was headline news across America uh, 10 years after we were part of the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was... uh, very disturbing stuff to come out. I mean, it's 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 some of it is the kind of stuff that. Uh, oh, I don't think I want to finish that thought. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. it's Cold War mentality, though. Yeah. You know, the Russians were researching this stuff. The CIA was interested in finding a technique to erase the memory of retiring agents, so they wouldn't even remember their um, what they knew that was classified. So that was part of it, you know, the use of hypnosis uh, to block memory. They were experimenting, what are the limits that you can push that? Can you really be sure that you've wiped a memory cell from the uh, trace from the brain and then it's not going to be accessible anymore? So that was part of it. They were also looking for the perfect drug to make enemy soldiers lay down their weapons on the battlefield and not fight. Mm-hmm. And they wondered if LSD was that drug. So they were spreading these experiments in all different directions at that time. Well, fast forward to today, where psychedelic drug use by the younger generation has been growing steadily. What are your feelings about LSD, peyote, ayahuasca, and the like? Do you think they're helpful for expanding consciousness or dangerous or both? Well, the answer is both. Um, it, it is both. I mean, the risks of using these drugs in an unsupervised way where you're not sure of how much you're getting, those risks have been well documented. Um, on the other hand, the benefits have also been documented, maybe not as well documented because research has been suppressed for like 30 years or so. Well, LSD was made illegal in 1966, but uh, anyone reading The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley will see that it can be a mind-expanding experience. And I would say, you know, that was partially true of my own experiences, um, but on the other hand, uh, uh, sometimes it could be dark and scary. You learn from that, though. I mean, a, a, a nightmare is dark and scary. You wake up from it. You know. And I guess the question is what you learn and, uh, 
and does it benefit you? I have, this is a personal opinion. I haven't done the scientific research to prove it, but my opinion is that these drugs, uh, the psychedelic drugs, can be a very strong aid to creativity and to uh, you know, freeing the mind for creative thought, artistic thought, new ideas. Apparently, there's a fad among business people microdosing with LSD to get a creative edge. What do you think about that? Do you think it's a safe practice, or are they playing with fire? Well, listen, Steve Jobs described the benefits that he had from an LSD mm -hmm. trip, which he, he felt permanently helped him and opened up his mind in a way that uh, had an effect upon all of the uh, creative inventions and design work that he did in the years that followed. So we read that Silicon Valley executives, uh, some are microdosing themselves with LSD and then going to work. Well, what does that mean, microdosing? Uh, for example, uh, LSD is effective in such tiny amounts that 100 micrograms as infinitesimal is enough to send someone on a trip that could last eight hours. So uh, I think the microdosing they're talking about is, is smaller than that, not large enough to, you know, really send you on your way, but large enough to sort of open a, some connections between some of the brain cells. Yes, it's playing with fire. Um, but... Um, well. I'd, I, 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 I won't be the one to en encourage anyone to, to do this, uh, uh, to uh, experiment on themselves. You don't know what you're doing or what you're getting. Uh, however, you know, the reason for blowing America's mind, I went through it, John Selby went through it with some really interesting scientists. You know, not just a, a callous or malicious people like you use those terms. These were intensely interesting and well-educated men who really wanted to learn more about what psychedelics could do and wanted to distinguish between the psychedelic experience and madness. In other words, the psychiatrist works with schizophrenics, manic depressives, psychotics, um, people who leave this world and go into delusional states and can't distinguish. And the first thought about these psychedelic drugs when they were discovered was that they're inducing a temporary form of madness, letting the ordinary person peek into the world of what a schizophrenic sees and feels. But Humphrey Osman asked the question, is that really true? Is that what we're seeing from these drugs, or is it something entirely different? And he felt that uh, there were similarities, but that there were also great differences. And the use of the hypnosis experiments with LSD uh, at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute was to learn more about those distinctions. Did research reports ever come out of these research programs? In our case, there was one report it wasn't comprehensive and it wasn't about the full study. However, uh, Dr. Osman and Dr. Aronson did uh, publish a book. They took credit as editors, not authors, although they each wrote sections of it. And it's called, I think, Psychedelics, The Uses and Implications of Psychedelic Drugs. 
And they had one section called non-drug analogs to the psychedelic state. And that's referring to hip hypnosis, mm -hmm. you know, using hypnosis to mimic a psychedelic state. And they reported on uh, the first pilot study of what we were involved in, of uh, what happened with seven subjects that they trained in deep hypnosis and put through all of these different kinds of uh, conditions. I mentioned some of them, but there were so many others in addition to changing the speed that time goes by, and they would change your sense of size so that you'd be walking around the Institute and feeling like you're very small. <laughs> uh, you know, you'd, you'd be at eye level with other people you're talking to, but you might have been programmed to think you're six inches tall. Or um, they would do out-of-body experiences. And in Blowing America's Mind, John Selby has a terrific material describing the effects of him having been turned into a bird in hypnosis and told to fly away. And while he was gone, they tampered with his memory and his personality, and they shut things out of his mind that weren't restored when he came back. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, we know that people were recruited during World War II to serve as remote viewers, and they were trained somewhere outside of Langley Field. And in fact, there is still the Monroe Institute nearby that uh, teaches remote viewing. You know, a lot of that research you're talking about, remote viewing, was done at Stanford mm -hmm. University. And uh, I, I believe that was part of the MKUltra program, too. Uh, Jimmy Carter commented on it at one point. He was asked about it after he was uh, no longer president. And he said that uh, they had acquired useful information from remote viewing. And he, he cited an instance of a plane that had gone down somewhere in Africa. And they'd lost track of where the plane was and that it was a remote viewer who went into a trance of some kind and uh, pulled the information somewhere out of the ether. And the information was valuable and correct. And they found that airplane as a result of it. So... You know, it's an, another example, I guess one example where it could have uh, positive effects. How would you compare marijuana to some of these psychedelic drugs? Well, uh, there's the marijuana that we remember as college students from the 1960s, which I understand is a pretty uh, different thing from the strong stuff that they have today uh, that's readily available. So uh, I can't so much speak to what's out there now today, but I've heard that some of it is so strong. It's as strong as, you know, like hashish or uh, th that it could really send you off on a journey for a long time. But uh, but I think it's a different effect. I, I, I think that uh, with the marijuana, it's a much more uh, physical. Um, is that the right expression? Um uh, because LSD can be very, very physical too, but LSD is a real sharpening of the senses. And I think it's a, a kind of a sharpening of the mind. You have um, phantasmagoria that comes in, um, all kinds of imagery, but when you're looking out at the world around you, you're also seeing it with a, an intense clarity mm -hmm. and noticing things you might not normally notice. My... my 
impression with cannabis is that it, it tends to make people, you know, maybe, you know, more sleepy, certainly hungry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that cannabis is the, is the same as a true-blown psychedelic experience. I, I don't think so. Well, there is one component in cannabis that will get you high, the THC, and it is psychoactive. But by and large, cannabis is more physiological. It is healing and anti-inflammatory and so on. Yeah, I think that was the word I was looking for, physiological. I heard a report that the FDA is considering legalizing ecstasy for PTSD, and we certainly know that cannabis is also very beneficial in PTSD. I think also psilocybin, the magic uh -huh. mushrooms, are coming into favor with some of the researchers who are finding possible medical uses for it that uh, weren't known before. I think particularly uh, combating depression. So we've had this suppression of research. Why do you think that is? Well, there was a tremendous uh, fear campaign, you know, going back to... Um, I think it was in part a reaction to the 1960s and the excess of that period, but LSD really spread across the country uh, at that time. And, I, you know, I think there was a fear of authorities that, uh, you know, certainly didn't approve of the hippie movement. And it seemed to create a lot of people who were willing to sort of drop out of society and just pursue their own ideas. So that was not in favor, and then you had the just say no movement of yes. Nixon and, and the Reagans. Nancy Reagan was a champion of just say no. Well, that didn't work, did it? I don't think so. <laughs> Are you concerned that mind manipulation research is still being funded by the CIA? You know, I, I'm concerned about everything that's absolutely classified that they won't tell us, mm. they won't breathe a word about. Uh, they have reasons that they don't want to tell the public 90% of what's going on, what our tax dollars are being used for. And in the intelligence community, everything is classified. So we have no way to know what's, what's being done um, or what their needs are today. I think their needs at that time were, were a little different because, um, you know, there was much more focus on how do you probe into an individual mind to get information, somebody who might be keeping secret, not disclosing. And today, everyone is disclosing everything about their lives online, in emails, on cell phones, and others have access to this. I mean, whether it's hackers or whether it's secret branches of the government, there's no part of anyone's life that someone else can't look into and have access to if they want to hard enough. So our, our lives are much more of an open book, for better or worse. There isn't privacy uh, as we used to relish it, let's say. <laughs> doesn't exist. You talk about hackers. I think the Russians have been developing this into a fine art. Is there any way that we should protect our population against these manipulative plots coming from whatever quarter? You know, Miriam, I'm not sure there is any way to protect ourselves uh, from that. I mean, one, one of the big chores that the public has today is, as is pointed out to us all the time, uh, distinguishing fake news from uh, real news. 
um, because uh, so much uh, fake stuff is put out there to deliberately mislead us. And that's been going on at least since the Roswell incident in 1947, disinformation, you know, letting, forcing the public to believe one thing when the truth is somewhere else. And I think that's been true about the Kennedy assassination and uh, maybe the circumstances that got us into the Iraq war and maybe 9-11. I mean, that's why you have so much conspiracy speculation because there's no way to know for sure anymore about any of it. So. A lot of us just become our own detectives looking for the evidence. We make up our own mind. But there's less belief today in, in, in what we're told, what the media tells us, what the news tells us, what the government tells us, I think, than there ever has been before. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I don't think that uh, skepticism is, is going to change. Well, your films have certainly covered some quite controversial subjects. You had Timothy Leary's Dead. You had... a documentary about Roswell that, if I recall correctly, got a Golden Globe nomination. Yeah, that one wasn't a documentary, actually. That was with actors. That oh. was uh, that was Kyle MacLachlan, Martin Sheen, Dwight Yoakam, uh, Showtime original movie. But some of the others uh, were documentaries. Like, I did make uh, Timothy Leary's life story a couple decades after the Blowing America's Mind experiences. Mm -hmm. um, Timothy Leary agreed to let me film his biography. Uh, it was the year before his death. He had cancer. He knew he was dying. It was a really uh, great opportunity. But yes, I think I've made a lot of controversial uh, films about uh, about subjects, sort of to open people's minds. You have to include Jesus in India. You'd have to include the Life After Death Project. And certainly my most recent film, Marilyn Monroe Declassified, which mm -hmm. is, you can see at Amazon Prime, and that was about the Kennedy assassination? No, that was about the, the Marilyn Monroe assassination <laughs> that they called a, a suicide. <laughs> but it has a lot Tell about the Kennedys. <laughs> it's, uh, it, you have to see it. Uh -huh. you know, I, I, I've, I've spent my life picking really interesting and often very controversial topics. Or even if the idea isn't controversial, I look for ideas that sort of challenge the mind. Like... Uh, I'm an artist, uh, and uh, I love the works of Vincent Van Gogh, and I've always been fascinated by his life, and I made a movie about him uh, called Starry Night, but it's a fantasy about Van Gogh. It's not literal biography. It's a fantasy of uh, what, what might happen if Van Gogh could come back today in our time for 100 days and straighten out the mess he made of his life, because he, <laughs> he, he thought he was a failure. So if he could come back today, he'd understand that his paintings are collectively worth about $4 billion today, right? Uh, yeah. So I found that to be a great topic for a movie with actors. And I've just kept at it and coming out with another movie just about every, every year. Um, it's been great. Do you think your experiences at Princeton might have given you a creative edge? And maybe even the tools to look behind the veil of conscious reality as well. Well, I benefited definitely by being a student at Princeton and graduate at, at, at Princeton. Uh, the tremendous professors, great education. Did I benefit by being part of the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute program? I think I learned a lot from the experience. Um, it, some of it was a nightmare. But I think that uh, at the point where I felt really manipulated and controlled by it, and I broke away from it, that I gained a kind of personal strength, um, 
so I didn't walk into those situations, uh, you know, knowingly, you know, any anymore. And uh, I followed the path I wanted to follow. And that's that's hard to do because a lot of people reach for the more secure path or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the job they think is not going to go away. When you're a creative artist or you're a filmmaker or a writer, the job is always going away. <laughs> you're done with one project, you're starting again, you know, from scratch. You're always back uh, at the ground floor. You're always having to, you know, rebuild uh, from an idea. And sometimes it, it takes years to make these films or write a book. This book, which uh, we're very proud of, I've just got a terrific review, by the way, in, uh, in the Midwest Book Review, um, uh, Miriam. And uh, the New Dawn magazine of Australia did a great eight-page article on, our, uh, on blowing America's mind. So it's beginning to get uh, some very positive attention. But it took us like 45 years. You know, we started writing it a couple years after this stuff happened. So the texture of the writing has a reality and a freshness to it that, you know, it it was the substance of our lives. It was still part of us at that time. Uh, And then as we learned more about MKUltra uh, and as we grew as writers, uh, you know, we waited a long period of time and then we finished it last year in 2017. And here it is. I hope that your listeners will be interested enough and intrigued to see what's on these uh, 231 pages. <laughs> oh, by the way, it is available as Kindle. Uh, you know, you go to Amazon.com, you can find the ebook, the Kindle book, or you can get it as um, the, the trade paperback. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the printed book is available at Amazon too. And, and if you have something other than a Kindle reader for your eBooks, you can find it for any of your devices, Barnes and Noble. You just shop around on the internet because it's, it's widely out there and it's being promoted in other countries too. I mean, I see that, uh, they have the eBook available in Japan and, uh, United Kingdom. It's getting out there. Just, if you read it and like it, tell your friends. Is there a particular message that you hope your readers will take away from blowing America's mind? I can't say that there's one message. You know, we've recreated our lives at a specific period of time. I think, though, that one of the messages is to um, realize that this thing has come full circle, that what was repressed for 30 years is back with us now. And there is more interest in the psychedelic drugs, not less. There's intensely more interest in marijuana now, which, which has become uh, legal, at least for medical purposes, in more than half of the states. And back when we were writing this book, you got caught with a joint, you'd be kicked out of the university, and you could face five or ten years in prison. So... The world has been changing, and in a sense, the world is catching up with things that we were talking about and writing about and blowing America's mind. So I think there's a lot to be learned in the book for, uh, for today, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe some things you want to avoid. You'll learn, too. Well, we've certainly covered the waterfront, Paul, and I want to wish you best of luck with this book, Blowing America's Mind, A True Story of Princeton, CIA Mind Control, LSD, and Zen. 
And we never talked about the Zen. No, we didn't. Well, Do you want to sneak that in here at the end? <laughs> well, is there a coda in there? Uh, yes, it's that as sort of a defense against what was being done to him in hypnosis, John Selby, the co-author, took a great interest in Zen, which is focusing the mind on the present. And he used what he called the Zen technique in his college fencing, and he became a champion. But the hypnosis crept up on him on the fencing mat to, um, let's say, bite him from behind. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> so yes, there's a Zen angle in the book too, and we had to put it into our subtitle. That was actually a very fascinating portion of the book where he used Zen techniques to center himself and get into the flow for fencing. It could have been in one of your movies, Paul. Anyway, um, do you have a website for the book? BlowingAmericasMind.com And listeners can also uh, reach us there, either me or John Selby. Okay. There's a lot of material there. We've written some blogs. Uh, John Selby has written more than I have. Uh, in the blogs. Um, and, uh, you know, he's also written some terrific uh, other books. And one of the most famous, I think, is called Seven Masters, One Path um, that Harper's put out. It's, uh, he's a very accomplished writer. And I hope I'll meet him sometime. John Selby and Paul Davids are the authors of Blowing America's Mind at blowingamericasmind.com. Next week, we'll have another fascinating interview on our show, Cannabis in Focus, and you can visit our website, CannabisInFocus.com. In the meantime, have a wonderful week. I'm Miriam Knight. Goodbye. <laughs>